Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of We Need to Talk. I could not be more excited about my guest today. He is an award-winning marketing professional, an activist, a philanthropist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Black Friend, Mr. Frederick Joseph. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Fred. The pleasure is all mine. So, I, so I've been so excited to talk to you ever since we met um, at the Yahoo Allyship uh, pledge because you said so many things that I aligned with. But even after reading your book, I I felt so validated in my own personal experiences because I grew up in Santa Barbara. I don't know if you've ever been there, but it is yeah. it's an aggressively white town. So <laughs> that's the only way I know how to <laughs> describe it. <laughs> and. You know, a lot of the things and a lot of the things you wrote, I obviously aligned with. And I know that like our experiences for black people that grow up in predominantly white towns were not anomalies in that sense. But it was this odd sense of just comfort reading your words because I could have easily written them myself. And I just love how candid and open you were. And I really appreciate your willingness and kind of the, the emotional work that you had to go through to even write that book. Yeah. <laughs> which I know is a lot, you know, and we're going to get into, we're going to get into that. We're going to get into that. But there, there are so many other things that I also want to talk to you before we even get into, to talking about your book. Cause even following you on social media, you continuously say things that I'm like, yep, 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 yep. So looking at just where we are now and, you know, we're finally, thank God at the end of um, the Donald Trump era. And I, I know there's always been kind of in general, this pushback with Biden and Kamala as a whole, and they definitely were not my first choice, but I was just in the get Donald Trump out by any means necessary camp. Um, But, you know, when it comes to the current administration and, you know, they've only been here a couple weeks, but are you hopeful that there is going to be tangible change that's going to occur, but more specifically in ways that's going to impact the black community positively? I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, I'm hoping so. Um, you know, they weren't my first choices. I basically voted for them um, because it was, you know, get Trump out. And that was um, my focus as well as the focus of um, countless other people. But I'm hoping that they actually do something right. Like, um, and they have the ability to. I, I, I'm wary, but I want to be surprised. Mm-hmm. And are you one of the people that was like a critic of their past? You know, how much do you hold their past against them? Um, I, I suppose yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think that someone's beholden. Um, I don't think someone's potential future is beholden to their past. Um, but I do think that you have to have accountability. And, and to be quite frank, I don't think that either of them has ever truly had accountability for the mm-hmm. things that they've done in the um but but again um ultimately I, I don't think that they're the worst um possibility you know we got the worst out um right for but, sure for but, sure I am very big on accountability and therefore I hold them accountable for their actions. Absolutely. And, you know, I tend to, this is just who I am, but I tend to lean on the side of just like giving people grace and giving people a chance to change. And I, what do you think is a reasonable amount of time to be like, okay, these people are either going to do something or they're not. (laughs) You know, for me, I think it's a hundred days, you know, um, I'm a, I'm a very big um, Elizabeth Warren supporter. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I was a surrogate of hers. Um, and I was also a surrogate for Bernie and they've outlined plans of things that, Hey, like if I was president, you can do these things in a hundred days. And I'm like, well, if we can do those things in a hundred days, get them done. Right. right. Like, you know, for example, we look at student loans 
you know, we're in, we're in a pandemic right now and, and an economic recession and something like um, canceling student loans, even if it was 50K and not everybody's complete um, student loans, but it would be an economic booster, especially economically marginalized, such as um, black and brown people, it would be a, a major weight um, and burden off of our backs, right? So I want to see that done. And the fact that I'm not hearing that happen, you know, and potentially happening is, is deeply troubling. You know, I, I have to admit, I was very ignorant to, until recently, for what student loan forgiveness could truly mean for people. But even in my research, and I think a lot of people are, I think when they hear student loan forgiveness, they automatically have that attitude. It's like, well, I paid for college. Why do these people not get to have to pay for college? But when you think of it as a whole, and in the research that I've done, it's like, how much it would close the racial wealth gap is just astronomical. And that's, it's such a huge step. And so like, I'm totally for it just in doing research. And I really hope that more people will do research to see how much of a positive thing it is and not focus on, you know, yes, we all paid for college, but we, this is just, we're trying to move forward, you know? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. You're, (laughs) you're, you're looking at, I mean, it's, it's such a, it's education is countries at the intersection of, everything wrong, everything oppressing, you know, black and brown people, you know, so with doing something, like you said, you know, there's, a, there's obviously a financial um, burden that's lifted, um, you know, by canceling student loans, but more so than that, there's also, um, you know, access that then um, becomes available to using money to buy homes, using money um, to pay off other debts, using money to send someone else to school, so on and so yeah. forth, right? Yeah. You know, there's, it's, it's systemic. Absolutely. So I want to backtrack a little bit and, and get your thoughts because you've posted about performative activism quite a bit. And it's, you know, in the last year, we've definitely seen it become um, a common reoccurrence with companies and just people and influencers. And I know you had some thoughts about Harriet Tubman being on the $20 bill, and I had some thoughts about that as well. Um, and I also don't know if you saw the the recent um, rollout of the Black Pride Watch from Apple. Did you see that? I, I saw it in passing. There's been a lot going on. Well, first of all, it's hideous. It's hideous, but that's even besides the point. It's what they were trying to do. But anyways, I, I think for me, what I've been so annoyed by these actions, and, and I'm sure that you agree with this, is that majority of the actions that are being taken really have nothing to do with anything that Black people have been asking for. And I think that after George Floyd was murdered, you know, all of these companies, they are posting Black and, you know, making statements and you wanting to do this and that for black people. But it's kind of like, you know, you go to a restaurant and you order a burger and then they bring you tacos. It's like, I love tacos, but that's not what I asked for, you know? (laughs) So I just want to hear your thoughts on that because I know that you have thoughts on performative activism. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, working backwards, you're 100% right, like in terms of like, this is just not what was asked for. And And I think the issue also is that it's not just, you know, white people doing it. A lot of it um, is being, um, you know, generated and upheld by other Black people, right? Like, when you look at something like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and them kneeling um, uh, in the Capitol Rotunda, um, that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was... Um, wearing uh, Kente Jim, cloth, mind you. Wearing Kente cloth. <laughs> that, was, uh, that was Jim Clyburn's idea, right? The same way um, they were talking about making the Black National Anthem, like, a a national hymn um, and to heal the racial divide. And that's also Clyburn's idea. Um, this is not what we asked for. We asked for you to stop <laughs> shooting us, right? right. Like stop right. shooting us um, and create access so that we can, um, you know, close the wealth gap so that we can close the education gap, um, you know, so on and so forth. 
and, and yeah, so the performative action, like, and I said this yesterday on a call that I had as a matter, or rather as Zoom I did um, with a company, you know, I said, you know, your, your black squares, for instance, that you posted, you posted them for George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and somehow just, oh my God, somehow they didn't stop Rayshard Brooks um, from being murdered right after, right? Like these things are not um, actually stopping anything. It's the same way, um, you know, for Harriet Tubman on the $20 bill, you know, it's great to have a black woman on a monetary note, maybe, um, but what does that even matter ultimately if black women don't have access to those $20 bills? Right, <laughs> right. That's such a valid point. What do you think that they think though? Like in these little statements and movements, do they? Do you think that they actually think it is making a difference? Um, I don't think that they really care either way. <laughs> you know? I think that what we've seen time and time again is that people will do anything to keep their worldly possessions, their power, their wealth, their access, and so forth, right? It's what you're seeing even in the stock market um, right now. You know, we have a capitalistic system, um, and, you know, a lot of conservatives and Republicans generally say um, that they're for, quote, uh, quote, unquote, free, free market. And, you know, what happened recently is that people leaned into capitalism and the idea of a free market and, you know, jumped into the stock market. Yeah. And they will and you know the dow even went up about 460 points and they were willing to just like destroy um everything in the name of not letting people have stuff right so so you know it's the same people who are hoarding that wealth that are also hoarding the access and the power from black people so no i I don't think that they care frankly (laughs) yeah i i I don't think so either but i was just wondering what, what your thoughts were i think I think there are some people that have good intentions, but I think in general, people just don't know what to do. So they're like, well, this seems like the easy enough action. So let me just, like you said, post a black square and show that like, I'm not racist, quote unquote, and maybe that'll be fine. It's the simplest things that they think are going to make a difference and it's not. (laughs) That's literally exactly it. It's um, let me post this black square because, you know, I I figure who, um, who popularized this term, but it's like our armchair activism, right? It's mm-hmm. like leave um, not only the comfort of my home, I don't have to even leave the comfort of, um, you know, my Instagram pages that I like or my, or, or whatever, right? Like you don't even have to share, like, you know, a lot of people don't share certain things that I say. They're like, it's too radical. It's too divisive. I'm like, what's, what is radical and divisive about saying like, Hey, um, your black spirits didn't do anything. There's nothing radical and divisive about that. It's just, right. Right. Well, I also think there's nothing political about saying the Black Lives Matter. I mean, that's a whole different conversation, but <laughs> I've never understood that. Yeah, it's interesting. And I love that you said that because, you know, Black Lives Matter is um, literally baseline, right? It's like, you know, saying Black Lives Matter isn't saying like Black lives prosper, nor is it even, nor is it saying Black lives deserve more than yours or anything like that. It's like, hey, like, in the grand scheme of things, like we matter too. Like, please don't kill us. That's, it's, it's so simple and rudimentary. It's such a basic level thing. So I have a question for you because your background is in marketing. Do you think that that phrase should have been re, you know, rebranded in a sense? <laughs> um, you know what? Like that is an interesting question and I'll be really transparent. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> You know, I, I'm, I've always been, like, I've always loved, the, like, for instance, Black Power to me um, was the statement, right? It was like, you know, Black Power 
meant so many things. Um, you know, it meant, you know, black excellence. It meant um, black fortification. It meant mm -hmm. black stability, black futures, so on and so forth. Um, but I think that Black Lives Matter is kind of like a, a step backwards from that, maybe. Um, it's like, okay, okay, okay. Well, if this is too much and this is too radical, what if we're just asking for you to not kill us and that we matter ultimately, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, it's, it's interesting in that way. So I would agree with I kind of feel that way about defund the police as well. You know, I think mm. people aren't going to, they hear defund the police and they, you know, their mind goes crazy. But if you actually read what defund the police stands for, it's nobody's asking you to just get rid of the police department. They're just asking you to reallocate funds. Now, obviously, reallocate funds is not exactly the best <laughs> branding slogan, but that's just kind of always been my my view of it, that like when you have a, a statement like that, people are just not going to pay attention. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting. I know there was a big thing, and that, that was the issue I had with Obama, actually. I don't mind if people think that something would, like, be better received or more understood um, if framed differently. Mm -hmm, but what I do mm -hmm. is when you don't come with solutions and you just attack things, right? So, like, you know, Obama saying, like, oh, it's not a good slogan to say third. I'm like, so what do you think So what's the solution, right? What because if I'm not mistaken, just four years ago, Black Lives Matter wasn't a good slogan either. Yeah, right? yeah, 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 yeah. Say that too. So what do you what do you want? Yeah, and then you go back and forth. Because and I struggle with this because it's like, well, are we only re wanting to rebrand this because we're trying to make white people comfortable? Is basically what it comes down to, right? So yeah, on one hand, it's like yes, you should have that kind of like poignant, sharp, like shocks factor to the statements but at the same time it's like you do want people to listen so yeah i i don't have a solution either and i'm i'm supporting defund the police i'm all for black lives matter obviously but i can sit back and understand well like okay i get why people aren't listening to this but i don't know any other way to say it yeah i mean that's i mean that makes perfect sense and, and i think that's what um many of us grapple with right it's like because at the end of the day it's like even with um my book you know a lot of people who haven't read it think that the book is, you know, inherently for white people. Like, actually, funny enough, if you read the book, it's actually not for it's it's white people read it and learn and so on and so forth. But it's actually more so written in a way um, to help young non-white people know that they are seeing it and like and you know because I needed this book. Yeah, um, so I, yeah. I think oftentimes, you know, we have to be really transparent and honest about who certain things are for. You know, mm -hmm. because if you're going to just be when the police doesn't work, well, who doesn't it work for? Say it doesn't work for white people and tell right. me. <laughs> Just talk about it. Be honest. Right, right. So let's talk about your book, though. So the Black Friend, and and I, I do think it's so well written. I think it's uniquely written. I love all of your little like your interstitials, little pauses that you have in there to speak your mind in between the conversations. I love the interviews that you have, and there are definitely people that I'm going to say you need to buy this book and and and, and read it, please. But what made you decide to write this when you did and kind of talk about a little bit about your process just of coming up with the before you know conception to release just how you came up with the entire idea of the black friend yeah for sure so it, it was it's funny because um you know it was written well before um 2020 and you know which i i do take uh hmm i have a little problem with a lot of people who like jumped on um, the like 2020 protest bandwagon of you know writing race books because a lot of them don't know what they're talking about and they're, they're <laughs> critical, they're critical race theory is um lacking. But anyway, back to mine. So um, you know, 
I actually was on the train heading to work one morning and I sat next to this white woman who, um, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm checking the boxes of respectability politics. I'm in a suit, fresh haircut, headphones on, Dean and DeLuca coffee in my hand. I'm, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm rocking that morning. I think I was listening to Whitney. You know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm rocking. I'm in my own zone. It just happened to be, there were other seats. Her seat happened to be um, the one that was closest and available. So I sat down, the one next to her. Mm-hmm. And when I sat down, she was a young white woman. She she clutched her purse and got up from the seat and moved next to a white man and then stared at me the whole time like I was going to like lunge at her and like rape her or, or kidnap her or something like that or rob her. And, you know, I deal with things like that pretty often because, you know, my fiance and I, we live in a, um, a high rise building here in the city. And, you know, for anybody who's non-white um, who hears that, you probably can imagine in certain spaces, which you just deal with on a regular basis, right? Like yeah. I'm walking around and hoodie and my Jordans um you know at times and you're like oh my god who's this whatever but which you so have you the still, right to wear by the way <laughs> I don't believe in respectability politics personally like I like that's why I do a lot of interviews wearing hoodies and and scullies and you know mm-hmm. stuff like that but anyway um so I, I I sat there and I was just staring at her like you know like wow you are horrible so I, I tweeted about the moment and I was tweeting about you know, her racism. And, um, you know, a lot of white people online were like, I'm sorry, this isn't racist. This isn't, this isn't racism. That's not what racism is. But also a lot of black people backed them up. They're like, yeah, I don't, this isn't racist. That's, she just moved away from, why did, maybe she just, and I was like, you know, it's so interesting. I, I realized something really deep in that moment. I'm like, we do a great job. No, we don't. We actually don't do a great job of anything, frankly. But we, we, we teach a lot about, uh, slavery. We teach a lot about um, the slave trade and the Civil War. And, you know, when it's February, we talk about, you know, the, the, some of the more, more popular figures in Black history. But we don't really talk about the daily manifestations and nuances of racism, right? Like, you know, we don't really have conversations with young people or older people about things like microaggressions. We don't yeah. have conversations about systemic trauma like what is it like to be a black kid in like a white class and be underestimated like how does that impact you um you know going forward we don't have those conversations and they're really yeah they're really important and I think what I find so funny is that it's hard to explain when people ask you well how do you know that it's racist it's like I just know I don't even know how to explain how you know what I mean it's just in our experience in our upbringing and everything black people just know we just know and we shouldn't have to explain why if I tell you that something was racist trust me on this (laughs) exactly it's like you know, and then it's funny because, um, you know, obviously you and I follow each other more recently, but, you know, there's a quick story I'll, I'll tell you about something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I rented an Airbnb over the summer with um, my fiance, my, um, my cousin and my, and my brother, my brother's nine now. Um, and so we rented this Airbnb in upstate New York. And um, when we got there, the Airbnb looked beautiful in the pictures. They said that when we got there, Airbnb was very nice um, in a secluded area on the water. Um, whatever. When I walked in, though, there were a bunch of trinkets and items all over and like posters and drawings that weren't there before. And they were all of um, things like um, kind of like witchcraft. Right. Um, and then there were like trinkets of like a dog having sex with a woman um, and like 
um, you know, devil kind of worship or witchcraft kind of things all over. Um, so, you know, I, I was like, well, we can't stay here, you know, and especially because it's not like I rented the place and that was already there. I'm like, why would, why would you randomly put these things here? Right. As right. Um, you know, and, and if anybody knows how insidious white supremacy is, I don't underestimate white supremacy ever. Um, I don't underestimate what people will do, especially in the security area, whatever. You get the, I'm sure you get the point. Um, and I remember tweeting about that, and that experience ended up being put in vice. People saying that I was bringing back satanic panic, and I was, and I was, and I was making a big deal of nothing, right? Um, that it wasn't, a, it wasn't like anything that could have led to racism. I was oh in no danger. Oh my gosh. You know, white people oftentimes don't have to think of the mortal peril that you're in from in a moment like that, right? You can, like, white people get the opportunity to just go lay in the woods in the middle of South Carolina. Hey, like, you know, I'm just, um, you, you, you get you get what I'm saying. Right, right. And I'm like, that's not the experience of most black people. I have to, if I see a Trump flag, I'm going to immediately assume that these people might try to murder me. You, like see, you, you see an American flag, you got to think twice. <laughs> why are you so happy to be here? What's wrong with you? You know? What are you, why are you so happy to be an American? I, okay, you know. I, I saw a tweet, this was a while ago, this was a couple of years ago, but it was like, America's the only country where if you see somebody flying their own country's flag, you're like, that person's probably racist. Yep. <laughs> it's all get out. And that's sad. That's sad that we've gotten to this point. It's right? Like, it's it's so... It's such facts. I mean, but yeah, so like that experience is another example of like how white people always think that they know what racism, how racism manifests itself. And I'm like, you don't, you don't know what you're talking about. The same way, I don't know, I don't know how homophobia manifests, you know, in every instance. I don't know how sexism manifests in every instance. I'm not a woman. I'm not, um, I'm not in the gay community. I'm not trans. I'm, you know what I mean? I am a cisgender, yeah. sexual black man. I can speak from that experience. And I'm not going to belittle somebody or gaslight them about theirs. Yeah. So another thing in your book you you mentioned is that when you went to college, pretty much, is when your pro-Blackness really started to evolve. And that was definitely a moment of my life where everything kind of shifted for me because I, even though I grew up in a predominantly white town, I went to a predominantly white Christian college, which that's a whole different conversation in terms of white supremacy and whiteness. But when I, when I got to college, I was actually exposed to like large groups of Black people my age, which I had never been around before. So for you, though, was there a very specific moment when you really started to shift into your more pro-Black stances? Um, I don't know if there was a specific moment. I think it was just, um, I think it was just honestly being like around, like I have been around Black people, um, obviously, like, and I lived in a Black neighborhood. I lived in a Black and Latinx neighborhood, but it was around, it was about being around Black people who were unlearning, unpacking, deconditioning, things like that, right? So that's a very different environment because yeah. when you're in the muck, you know, when you're in the muck every single day and people are just like, you know, I, you know, when I was growing up, we were on section eight, X, Y, and Z, we're just trying to survive. Nobody's having the time to sit down and dissect um, Asada Shakur, right? Like, um, and, and think about the works of Marcus Garvey and things like that. So when I got there, you know, people were talking that liberation stuff, I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm just trying to get this bread, you know, <laughs> like trying to get this money and get out the hood. And, and you know, and then people are like, 
well, blah, 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 my brother. And by, by the end of college, me, I'm going, I, you know, I was <laughs> damn near my brother this, my sister that. Yeah, I was almost, I was almost common. But at the end of college, you <laughs> couldn't tell me anything. <laughs> Oh, oh, I love that. That's, that's, oh man, that's really funny. It's just like a four-year progression for you. You probably looked so different to the people that knew you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> now I think people look at me different um, or differently from where, probably from like where I was even like three years ago, I think that the world has changed so much in the last three years. So I've had to change with it, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm intersectional, intersectional way um, than, than I ever have in my life. I'm really pushing, um, you know, for intersectionality and really like thinking about like trans black women, so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah. Was there a part of your book that was the hardest to write? Because you do recall a lot of things from your past. And I know that people don't realize sometimes the emotional trauma and emotional labor it takes to recall just racist situations and memories for as a black person from your past. Yeah, I think for me, the hardest thing to, to write, hmm, and I, and I think I say it too. The hardest thing was to write actually was the preface. Um, mm-hmm. You know, because I talk to the reader for a second. And then after that, I write a, a, a short letter to my brother. And, you know, when you are Black, you know, I, I, I talked about this briefly. You, you constantly face your own mortality when you leave the house, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, actually, in, 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 you know, what we've seen, especially this year, um, you know, with Breonna Taylor and historically with Fred Hampton, and people like that, you actually face your own mortality at all seconds um, of your life being black because you know if they want you, they'll find you. Um, but you know, for for me, that was really difficult. I was like, I, I I said to him, I don't know if I'm going to be here when you eventually read it, and I really don't know if I'm going to be here when he eventually reads it. I, mm. you know, the way America, I might be in a box at any moment, especially for trying to be a truth teller. So, I w- I want to focus also on a concept that you brought up, but I, I think it's talked about often, but it's just that there's this mindset of, of whiteness kind of being synonymous with just education, with normality, just with mainstream. And do you think that that's ever going to change? Um, yes, I do, actually, because I think that it's it's slowly but surely it's slowly but surely changing now, funny enough, right? Like there's there's a there's a widespread understanding um, amongst you know, liberals at least that, oh, black women, listen to black women, black women are, are you know, this and that and third. The issue becomes, then we lean into like tokenization, um, you know, at that point. And so, so it's like, you'll replace one thing with another, right? It'll be mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Um, you know, black people are the pillar of intellectual prowess. And then, you know, you get that, like, how come every black person we hire doesn't perform at um, you know the most optimal rate we've ever seen in our lives. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. It's always an exchange. Always right. an exchange. Right, right, for sure. And do you? Well, so I wanted to backtrack because you're saying you know people are now saying you know listen to black women. Why do you think it has taken so long for them to actually do that? Because it didn't matter before, right? Like they didn't have to. And I think that you know finally, um, you know some other forces. Um, be it uh, black men stepping up um, in support of black women, white women uh, stepping up. I think black women just 
you know, getting more of the platform that's deserved and generally to be able to, you know, step up for themselves. There's kind of like this um, perfect storm. I also have a conspiracy theory actually as to how it's happening, but that's a whole nother conversation. If oh, you I want to hear it. No, I want to hear it. I want to hear it. <laughs> I actually think that a lot of the listen to black women, because it kind of grew this, this past year, like yeah. in the last, um, you know, like, like I, I blew up. So the reality is, you know, Joe Biden is not going to be running for office again. So that means that they're going to run Kamala. And I wonder if they haven't like really pushed this like strategically um, to prepare people for the idea of supporting black women when it comes to 2024. Mm, Because she would be at the helm, basically. Yeah. I don't think that's a crazy theory, actually. I don't. Yeah, I I, I think there's a lot of truth to that, actually. And I think, I mean, I think people are kind of preparing for that anyway. Like, let's just be honest. Biden is old. He's old. Like, there's no other way to get around it. The man's 78 years old. He's not going to be a two-term president any way you look at it, you know? So... I don't. I don't think it's as much as a. Cons- I don't think it's as much of a conspiracy theory as you think it is. I think yeah. there's a lot of truth to it. So we'll see. We'll, we're- <laughs> so do you have a favorite interview in your book? Because I love all of the interviews that you have, and I I walked away from a lot of them taking little tokens of things that I resonated with and that really stuck with me. But there, is there one in particular that really stood out to you? Um. Hmm. A favorite interview. Um, I, you know, I think a lot of people went off, um, and a lot of people snapped. I, I wanted people to snap. Um, but they I did, think, and I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I think if I had a favorite, um, you know, who, I think two, two actually. One, I loved talking. I loved the interview with Terrell Alvin McCraney. Mm. Um, because it allowed me to hold myself accountable as well, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and I, and I wanted to be really. I, I'm a pretty direct person, transparent. I think that's why people oftentimes relate to me and the things I'm trying to accomplish. So, you know, um, so that was an important interview because, you know, I think a lot of white people were able to see themselves in my own mistake, right? Um, When it came to a community that I don't belong to. Uh, Beyond that, um, let me think. Oh, Syra Rao. I think Syra snapped. Because Syra, you know, Syra's very, um, she's, she's a leftist. And, you know, she had a line in there that like was like, there's a, there's a, she said, I think she said there's a through line from Susan B. Anthony directly to Nancy Pelosi. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> and I, and I, and a lot of, you know, a lot of people push back like, Oh, I don't know if you can keep that because it's a young adult book. I was like, no, I'm key. I have to keep it. Right. Yeah. Because, because the reality is it calls out so much. It calls out white feminism, but it specifically calls out white liberal um, feminism and this idea um, that, you know, white women in certain spaces are not problematic and not also a part of the problem. And I was like, that's a really important conversation for yeah, us to have. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, those those were, were great interviews. So before we wrap up, I, I want to know, what do you hope the people that read your book walk away feeling or thinking? What is your intention for for them once they close the book and finish it? What what do you want them to to feel or even do? Um, let me see. What do I want them to feel or do? I think I would want them to, uh, hmm, to, to be ready to take action, mm-hmm. right? Like, to get up, like, cause the book is, the book is not systemic change. The, the book is a way to start reimagining and reframing the way you think and see yeah. 
right? So then if you start doing that, then you hold yourself accountable for what you have been doing and then immediately start changing it. You know, like um, I tell a lot of people to read Hood Feminism by Nikki Kendall because it, 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 it's something I, pr- I try to read often because it helps me be like, okay, how am I creating space? How am I, how am I taking up space? Like when it comes yeah. to women, right? So, so, and then I try to take action. Like, hey, okay, well, like, um, if somebody recommends me for something, if you know, they're like, "Hey, do you want to talk at this thing?" I'm like, "Well, you know, why don't you get a black woman to talk at that, right?" Like, um, and, and that's action. And, mm-hmm. and I want to start doing that from this book. Like, okay, like, what can I do right now? What's the next step that I can take at this moment? Mm-hmm. I love that. Well, tell my listeners where they can find you and where they can buy your book. Um, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Fred T Joseph. And the book is, um, you know, wherever books are sold. Um, and I would, I would say, um, try to shop um, at a at a indie local bookstore. If yes. You can. Yes. Org. Support your local bookshops. Uh, we need them more than ever. Amen to that. Well, Fred, thank you so much. I really had a pleasure talking to you. It was wonderful. And I will be following you because I love everything you say on social media. I'm very aligned with your statements. And to the listeners, make sure you subscribe to We Need to Talk. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.